Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin. So today I am in Nashville and I'm here in town for Students for Liberty Freer Future Festival, which is the conference on this weekend. And just earlier tonight, I was at Nashville Bitcoin Meetup with Matt O'Dell and I, we were talking about Bitcoin privacy. Uh, and so for this episode, we're talking about Bitcoin, only the strong survive. So this was an excellent article written by Alan Farrington and Big Al. Now, Alan couldn't join us for this episode, but Big Al was able to. And we talk about various critiques of crypto as opposed to Bitcoin. And we contrast some of the key things that you need to know around DeFi, not being decentralized and not being financed, as well as the, the problems of utility tokens and perhaps some of the dishonesty around TVL metrics, as well as the leverage present in DeFi. The show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Have you signed up with us yet? Swan allows you to accumulate Bitcoin with lump sum purchases or setting up your automatic recurring buy. Now, as I'm part of the team, I've been helping onboard various people into our service at Swan, and that includes high net worth investors, corporates and business entities. And essentially, we're providing dedicated Bitcoin account experts who are available for one-on-one -on -one calls. So with the recent price action, we're seeing a lot of new customers come in, and I'm spending a lot of my time actually helping those customers out in terms of handholding and guidance on the pathway, as well as giving them some tips on self-custody and security. So Swan is a great place to come and sign up, or if you have friends who are interested to buy Bitcoin, send them over to us. Send them to swanprivate.com and they can complete the form to sign up. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can lend or borrow stable coins globally and anonymously using Bitcoin as collateral. There's no KYC. So with Lend at HodlHodl, you no longer have to sell your Bitcoin to get short-term liquidity. You can borrow stable coins against your Bitcoin and still control your collateral in escrow throughout the whole deal. You hold one key out of the three, while stablecoin owners can earn some extra interest. So there's a major security upgrade coming through with HODL HODL's lending platform. It'll be back to functioning starting on the 11th of October. So sign up at lend.hodlhodl.com and be among the first users to try the great improvements. If you are looking for a Bitcoin hardware wallet, my favorite is the cold card over at coinkite.com. Now the cold card is a specialized device. It can be used in an air-gapped way, meaning you plug that device into the wall or you get a cold power and battery power your cold card. And then you get a micro SD card and use that to move the transaction data back and forth between the cold card and your computer. And you would use a wallet such as Spectre Desktop or Sparrow or Electrum to do these kinds of air-gapped transactions. The cold card has all sorts of other security features like the ability to have a Jures pin, uh, a BrickMe pin, and you can also use the address explorer to verify your receive address. So what you're doing here is you're making sure that you truly control that receive address and that it hasn't been maliciously exploited and changed. So if you want to get your cold card, go to coincard.com and use the code Levera to get a discount on your cold card. On to the show. Big Al, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Stefan. It's, um, it's a pleasure. Yeah, so I really enjoyed this piece that you and Alan wrote recently uh, around what's going on in the Bitcoin and the crypto space, and it's called Only the Strong Survive. And so for listeners, Big Al or Al is under a pseudonym today, so we're not going to go dive too deep into his background, but maybe if you could tell us a little bit about your process of you know writing this article with Alan. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Alan and I have known each other for quite a number of years, and over the past year, we've we've become closer, and we 
we were always having back and forth and discussing what was going on in Bitcoin and as well as just broader and especially with everything going on in DeFi. And I think both of us like to take a pretty open-minded approach. I certainly do not consider myself a maximalist. I don't think he does either. And so as we together sort of dove deeper into what was going on in quote-unquote decentralized finance today, we decided that we wanted to put our opinions on paper. From And I believe we must have started this about five months ago. So it's been a quite, quite a journey writing all of this, but we wanted to be as thorough as possible. It actually at one point was 72 pages. So <laughs> this and you is got it down shortened. to like 48 or something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is actually the shortened version. And, you know, what we were really trying to do was put out our opinions. And we the best feedback has been from people who helped edit it who, you know, don't quite agree, but still appreciate the level of diligence that we, we tried to put in into expressing our, our feelings. Yeah. Okay. And so let's start with defining some terms because there's all these words people are throwing around, you know, crypto and DeFi and things like that. So how would you... How do we even define what crypto is? Because, I mean, really, uh, the, the hardcore answer I've heard is more like, no, crypto means cryptography. Crypto is nothing, right? So uh, how would you, do you have a definition of that? Or how would you encapsulate what we're talking about here? Yeah, I think that it isn't a hardcore definition from what we use or, or how I use it. I, I'm going to give the market the benefit of if they want to dub it crypto, what is going on, all these different quote-unquote blockchain-based applications that are maybe decentralized, maybe not, fine. We can dub them crypto. And what we were trying to do is uh, just differentiate what you know quote-unquote crypto and all these other things versus maybe a Bitcoin and other chains that are perhaps actually touting and doing what they're touting. Uh, so we stayed with sort of the, the market version of, of what crypto was because we thought that was what was best for the reader. Right. And it's, you know, definitions can move and change over time. And that seems to be what the world is going to, despite my protestations of Bitcoin, not crypto. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, also there's this term DeFi. So how do you define DeFi, what, is it, what does DeFi mean to you uh, in the context of you, your, how you think about things and this paper? Absolutely. So Alan and I, and I, I, I'm going to speak from as much as I would have loved to be on and talk about this as well, but Alan and I definitely agree on this. We love the concept of decentralized finance. The idea that you're building an ecosystem that is more fair, accessible, has less middlemen in, in the financial world, which is notoriously has had middlemen throughout the ages. There are things going on in the back end. There's also issues with how the monetary policy um, is done in many countries, especially as what we're seeing today. Uh, so it's probably a good time to have written this paper. But from a concept, decentralized finance and building out the uh, building blocks of capital markets and financial markets in a more free, accessible and open way for everyone is, is how we define decentralized finance. And we make this hopefully very clear is that we love decentralized finance. Our concerns are about a lot of what we're seeing being called DeFi today. And is it actually living up to, to that beautiful definition? In a, in a, yeah. Yeah. And as, uh, as we'll get into, I think some of the problems are, you know, it's not decentralized enough and it's not finance. Right? So it's like, <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, unfortunate in that way. Uh, and so I think you were touching on this earlier in not being explicitly a Bitcoin maxi. But that also comes up in this conversation because there are attempts to do DeFi-like things or DeFi in the Bitcoin world and have lending and collateralized loans and so on, as an example. And so are things unequivocally good merely because they are built on Bitcoin? 
Absolutely not. If I start to see a lot of the shenanigans that we have seen on other chains and, you know, rehypothecated tokens, tokens that, that do not have a clear tie to real world value, tokens that, you know, say they earn yield, but yield requires a connection to a real monetary asset and a real productive asset. Um, if, if I begin to see those come on lightning or layer two, um, so Bitcoin or layer two lightning, I'll be the first one to write another one of these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I think that's an important point to make, and I think others have framed it similarly, like Elise Colleen has framed it more like being a sound technology maximalist as opposed to being doggedly or ideologically or like being an ideologue about only uh, Bitcoin, I suppose, is, the, is probably the way people are framing it, right? Absolutely. So... It's important then to talk about what the real breakthrough with Bitcoin was. And now I touched on this, actually, Guy Swan and I were talking about this in a recent episode as well, about why you should focus on Bitcoin and not get distracted. But I think it, it is worthwhile to talk through that uh, important breakthrough. So from your point of view, what what is the breakthrough here? What is making Bitcoin distinct? Yeah, you know, um, and without doxing myself, I guess, but I got into Bitcoin years back because I was doing a lot of game theory research. And... What got me into it was the beauty of creating a consensus mechanism and a, a permissionless settlement layer, but truly permissionless, truly open. And of course, you know, especially when you first learn about it, you think about the issues. Well, it's, you know, it can't have the transaction throughput, et cetera, et cetera. But as you learn more, you know, the base layer and what I view Bitcoin as, as a settlement layer, I love using the analogy. It's like a good judicial system. No one really wants to deal with the judicial system, deal with the Supreme Court, but how you create any sort of economy or strong monetary value out of that has always for history been based off having a strong judicial system. And a judicial system is sort of like a settlement layer. When there are issues, it is secure. And so that really using proof of work, using cryptography, using, you know, quote unquote blockchain or time chain as we call it for the most part, is those technologies by themselves are actually quite boring, quite old, and quite inefficient in a lot of ways. It's 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 the combination and creating a beautiful consensus mechanism. And I would I would probably attribute most of it to proof of work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is an important point because this also comes up when someone is a new coiner and they're thinking, oh, but is Bitcoin the MySpace, right? And that's obviously anyone who's been in this space for any reasonable amount of time has heard that probably thousands of times by now. <laughs> but essentially, it's it's saying that these pieces existed in certain forms, but it was about the combination of them and certain tweaks, right? So proof of work, the difficulty adjustment that really took it, that addition of it combined made this something valuable. And this idea that we can have a ledger that you don't have to trust and we can all come to agreement on what is the true state of that ledger. Who owns this coin and who owns that coin? We are not in dispute about that. Exactly. And that needs to be bulletproof if we're going to accomplish the goals and the dreams of what decentralized finance as well as a lot of other things that are being built on this hope to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. And so then let's bring it to, I guess, some of the high-level problems, as we were touching on earlier. Some of the problems with so-called crypto is that it's not decentralized enough and not really financed. So do you want to expand a little bit on those ideas there? Like, why is it not decentralized enough? Yeah, um, I mean, there's 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 a lot there, and I, I'm going to try to distill it for the sake of a, yeah. of a helpful helpful interview. I mean, 
one in in a lot of these different chains and a lot of these different projects you you simply do see key leaders key figureheads constant changes uh to their base chains like you know it goes to simple quotes like you know if if the government were to come after you could you turn it off and i think the answer for a lot of this is yes if a couple of people showed up in your house with guns and they said hey we'd like you to turn this off it could be turned off and that is that is for one the issue with uh, decentralization on on some of those assets and then of course with with some of the extrapolations past the base layers that we see and this is really where you know I don't want to harp and attack too many of the base layers but a lot of this talks about sort of what we're seeing in defi which are these one offs which are essentially can be traced back to a handful of people who control what go on in those quote unquote defi defi projects. I see yeah. And it's for anyone who's following the space it seems that every week or every second week there's a big hack and it could be 50 million dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of some token that has been maybe there's been an exploit or it's been stolen by somebody and then they're trying to get it back and then you're seeing the shenanigans around the decentralized ecosystem saying oh please please send the money back to us right and so <laughs> it's yeah. Oh, yeah only the strong don't have to call the irs when they when they create an oopsie <laughs> but i don't want to attack any specific project or anything like that it's that was just a really funny i had a laugh when i saw that yeah and so i mean now, I, I want to be fair here as well, because Bitcoin has is not unblemished, right? In the early days of Bitcoin, there was the buffer overflow. I think it was late 2010 or maybe 2011, and it was like 84 billion Bitcoins got created, right? Uh, in 2013, <laughs> there, was a, there was a fork. And although arguably that was because of that, uh, there was like a, you know, th- this Berkeley DB thing that happened. And there was an inflation bug in 2018, but it was not exploited in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And there have been times in Bitcoin's past where people have, as an example, tried to say, oh, look, this mining pool is getting too big. We need to try to not point hash rate to this mining pool. And, you know, and I think in fairness, that, that mining pool, uh, I can't remember the name. Was it uh, Ghash or something? In 2014, and I think they voluntarily lowered their hash rate. So, you know, I, I want to be fair here. It's not that Bitcoin has had this perfectly unblemished record, but I think it is fair to say it might have started out centralized, obviously with Satoshi and Hal in the early days, and it has continually and progressively decentralized and i think that is a fair statement what do you think i completely agree and you know in this in this piece what i hope comes across is that we're not dismissing all these things i have i have many you know close friends people who are significantly smarter than i am who have dedicated their their professional careers to helping build out these other chains and and perhaps they will succeed perhaps there will be something that changes and it becomes decentralized and it becomes what they say it is this was really talking about you know, right now, what is going on and what is is being said as decentralized finance um, is so far away from what's actually happening and in the background. And you know, it's a classic thing in investing. You always have to get a little concerned when when there's one thing being publicly said, ideals being spouted, and then what's actually going on behind the back of the door is slightly different. But you're absolutely correct. We could you you never want to just fully dismiss other things. You never want to say they can never get there. It's just we're writing this piece as of the evidence that we have seen today. Right. And so, yeah, fair to say this is based on your views as of September 2021 and say the few months preceding to that. That's essentially that's the time period that you were assessing and writing this piece. And I think it's also fair to say that there are 
pressures and centralization pressures. And so for listeners, check out the earlier episode with Alex Burge, uh, where we spoke about, for example, with Ethereum, that there is very arguably a, a pressure towards centralization in the Ethereum ecosystem uh, because of the way of the interaction between staking, staking derivatives, exchange incentives, and so on, that might lead towards someday a lot of the power being held and controlled by certain individuals and institutions who are essentially choosing who are the validators. Whereas in the Bitcoin world, it's saying, no, it's proof of work. And that's how you tie the real world to the blockchain or the time chain. And in that way, keep the system open in terms of who is able to be a validator. Uh, But do you have any thoughts or reflections to add there? Yeah, I mean, I I could not agree more with that. I I believe from what I've seen is that there might actually be a push to more centralization on, let's say, something like Ethereum. I am frightened of proof of stake for for at least the, perhaps there are ways to solve it that doesn't make it just an oligarchy. But when I think about proof of stake, it, it goes against then, okay, especially as you said, it could centralize into certain institutions and they choose who the validators are. You're creating sort of the opposite of what we were hoping to. Proof of work, anyone can go online. I, I actually um, help with a Bitcoin miner, and you know we're 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 not new to the game, but you know we're just some random people building large Bitcoin mines, and so <laughs> you know everyone is allowed to participate. But if it becomes proof of stake and where all the assets are staked, that that sound, starts to sound a lot like um, a bit oli- like a bit like an oligarchy, which I concern myself with, and maybe I'll be proven wrong, and but. I'd certainly, I would need to be proven wrong for me to change my belief on that. Yeah, I see. And it ultimately comes down to accessibility. So in Bitcoin, it's very cheap. You can run a Bitcoin node just on your laptop and you will be validating the entire supply of Bitcoin. You'll be validate, you can validate every transaction that's ever occurred in Bitcoin, at least in terms of the main chain. Uh, And that's just simply more accessible than a lot of the altcoins are. So I think that's also a very important point to consider there for people. Absolutely. I mean, being able to run nodes and being able to at least validate what is going on is incredibly important. That needs to be accessible. It's simply, I think that's, I, I do think that's a must. And um, if other chains ignore that, you're you're ignoring one of the core principles here. Yeah. And I think perhaps that's, because it's such a complicated space and that there are different moving parts, it's easy to confuse people by talking about, oh, look how much transactions we can do, or look at this metric that we can show but they've made a trade-off in the background without telling you about that. So they've made some kind of trade-off that says, okay, we're, we're trading off the decentralization of this ecosystem or we're trading off the ability for the everyman, the retail individual, the man walking on the street to be able to run his own full node and fully participate and uh, fully validate as well. So I think that's an important point that um, people, people who are new to this world might not be as familiar with that. And I also wanted to ask you a little bit about this point where, so I think... Over the last few years, the economics angle has also been quite important. I I think it's a mix of economics and technical. But the important point to understand here is that there's always this tendency towards the most saleable, right? So if you're talking in the realm of something trying to be money, then that's an important consideration. But maybe this is one of the counterpoints we're starting to come here again, and it's not a new point, but this idea of, oh, fine, we're not even trying to be money. What's your thought on that kind of scenario and an altcoin that's trying to market itself or the proponents of that altcoin marketing under that pretense. Yeah, so there's a lot of thoughts there and I'll try to condense them. A lot of, we've tarped a lot about DeFi, right? And that is really what we're talking about. And much of the, much of what quote unquote finance is 
one, you need a strong monetary asset at the base of any financial system. That is a that is a fact of, of economics. But two is that much of this has to do with yields and yields generated by these tokens. But if your tokens are one of two things, one, if it's simply just a utility token, um, the liquidity and the value that will come to it uh, simply isn't there. No one holds casino chips because they want to hold casino chips. You use them and then you leave. You get an iTunes gift card, or at least back in my day when I gift those <laughs> for birthdays, you get an iTunes gift card and you'd gift it. No one was using those as solid currencies. So let's say you're not that. Well, then you're, you become, and I hate to use the word because I know there's a lot of regulatory pressures and I don't always agree with the SEC and regulation. I'm not, I, especially in the industry I work, they're always a pain, but no, I love you, SEC. Don't, don't listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, you know, you, if you are um, then giving a token, you know, label it a governance token or whatnot, the only reason it would maintain value is that you have an expectation of future free cash flows and yields. And if you don't have a monetary asset as a base there for those future free cash flows and those yields, it's sort of a self-licking ice cream cone. You're not you're creating a token to yield more of that token, but without that ending connection, um, it's not true yield. That is not what a yield is. Um, that's that's not a yeah. Yeah. So let me let me paraphrase that and put that in another way. So. We could think of it like there's the world of investment, right? So you buy a stock. That's an ownership share in a company. And you will generally be receiving a dividend, a, a stream of the productive, the profits from the productive enterprise of that company. Or you might own a property and you might be getting rental payments because, again, somebody is paying you to use the house or the apartment. Or you might have a bond and you're receiving coupon payments, interest payments, right? So that's in the world of investment. And then in the world of holding money, we hold money because it reduces our future uncertainty. And so Bitcoin doesn't necessarily have to be an investment in that sense. It's, it's more like savings. And so if you're not in the trying to be money category like Bitcoin is, then it's kind of like why there needs to be a reason for people to hold it. And as you were saying, there's not really a reason to hold it other than to create more of the, that coin or there's kind of governance coins or governance incentives and things around these. So it just ends up being that there's not necessarily a good reason to hold these coins. That is unfortunately, because honestly, when I came in, I was like, oh, wait, decentralized finance is actually being built. This is awesome. And as you as I've dug through the onion layers, and I'm sure there are people who are a lot sharper than me, but Alan, I've spent a lot of time digging through the layers here. And Yes, uh, unfortunately, it has not become clear to me why why these tokens should um, accrue long-term value outside of simply speculation, which we emphasize and is very important to emphasize. Speculation in of itself is not only not bad, it is actually good in a lot of regards. It funds some of the most innovative ideas. But speculation on speculation, that it will continue to have value without a bridge back to a real-world monetary asset... That is, um, you're misconstruing some other sort of speculative investments that have done very well, like venture capital and early tech and whatnot, to, to, uh, to a space where it might not be deserved to be applied. Yeah, I see. And I think the other point that you make in the article or the paper is this idea about coordinating security costs. Because as we were saying earlier, proof of work gives that link between the physical world and the digital and if you're now taking that away, well, what's the, what's the security model? Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually that 
that simple, to be honest. I think it, it really is. If, if you're taking away the link from the work from true world electricity costs, which are real things, coordinating you know, all the machinery, the energy, the electricity to validating the network, um, and instead you're just purchasing the asset and putting it in there, um, well, like you're, you're disassociating one of the core links from the real world and, and the value that should be put in to, to the coin. And it, 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 it takes once again another link in, which, which leads us, um, and we write a lot of pages on this, on you know, where are these yields coming from? Where is finally the connection <laughs> in all of this? And we really, I, I have to emphasize again, we, and I still take an open mind. I would love to be proven just completely wrong on this by someone who's so much smarter than me, but I just haven't heard it yet. I haven't seen it. Yeah. So it, it seems that the yield comes from creating more coins I, I'm I'm a bit confused. Like maybe maybe the steel man. Okay, so let me, let's try to steel man this for a second. So could it be that this platform enables some kind of thing that's only possible in this way? And in order to use this platform, you need this utility token. And is that the reason why you would hold this coin, or or is it? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to make this argument, but I just I really can't even make it make sense in my own mind. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you had to steel man. What what would the argument be? Yeah, if I, if I had to steal manner on argument, it, it would be it would be exactly that that you know you there's something so valuable about using this network. Well, let's say there's some new internet protocol, quote unquote. Suddenly we all started stopped using Google Chrome or whatever browsers, and the only way you could do it is if you you bought their um, you know made up token, and and to use that internet, you hold the token and. Again, though, I'd go to the the thing is that this when I even try that steel man, and I should probably have a better steel man to make an argument because that's intellectual honesty. But then I just say like, okay, when I was younger and wanted to buy a song on the iTunes store, I would you know get my iTunes gift card, but I would spend it. So you're not you 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 fight for liquidity, and and we we go into a section about the fight for liquidity. So if you suddenly become a utility token, and people and companies everywhere. Uh, you do not want to. That make, makes it essentially inventory, whether it's personal, whether it's professional. You don't hold those inventories. You plan on using those inventories. So, hopefully, that was a decent answer. Yeah. But it, it is difficult with the steelman. I struggle yeah. too sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another way I've heard of it, actually, uh, my friend John from Sydney, actually, I think he's framed it this way. I'm not sure if he invented this or other people have, but it's this idea that imagine you had a coin to pay your bank fees with, right? Bank fee coin. Who in their right mind is going to prepay their bank fees? You would just buy <laughs> the bank fee coin at the exact moment you need it, pay for the service, and then boom, you're done. You, you're not sitting there holding a cash balance of bank fee coin, right? No, you are not. So I think, and that, and that ties into that point you were making earlier, that everything fights for liquidity. And so in the world of money, you want to hold the most saleable commodity. And that's, again, the Mengurian Austrian story around money. So bringing it to the utility tokens idea as well, even in this whole notion of, okay, so in order to use this platform, you need this utility token. But again, you might still be at the risk then of somebody else running in and being like, oh, you've made this platform with an unnecessary coin. Uh, Let me just remake this platform without the coin and strip it out, right? So that's also a factor that you're just always going to be vulnerable to that. Yeah, it's a beautiful point. You know, from what I do professionally, as I disclose, I'm not going to disclose all, but I do work at an investment firm, a hedge fund here. And um, as we've looked into the space, you know, what you see a stark difference with regards to the issuing of tokens that the fact is most of these tokens do not need to exist. There have been some 
brilliant economics done to try to create them and try to convince people to, to move them around. I believe probably the most famous example is Uniswap and SushiSwap, right? How SushiSwap created the tokens to then incentivize LPs and try to sort of get, get people off of Uniswaps. But what you notice in the Bitcoin ecosystem and what is being built, albeit a lot slower than the move fast and break things ecosystem, which is very admirable in its own right, except as we say, maybe a little dangerous. But when you speak to founders of these these projects in, in layer two on Bitcoin, I don't think a single one of them has basically spoken about creating a token because they're like, well, we don't need one. It's not it, it's unnecessary. We're using the base monetary asset that people want. Back to the show in a moment. Have you thought about Bitcoin mining? Compass is an online marketplace making it easy for everyone to mine Bitcoin and in doing so, you're enhancing the Bitcoin network's security. So this is not cloud mining. You can purchase an ASIC and have that shipped to a facility that has been vetted by the team. And then you can select a pool to have your mining uh, machine go towards or contribute hash power and you can then receive sats and you would pay a hosting fee also compass have launched mining at home so if you are in the us you can order mining equipment to your house and plug it in and earn sats so compass mining are doing all kinds of things to make mining accessible so go over to compassmining.io and sign up today so as we're watching number go up, have you thought about upgrading your Bitcoin security? Unchained Capital are helping with this because you can create a multi-signature vault. So don't leave your Bitcoin with a custodian and even single signature wallets are worth reconsidering if you want to eliminate single points of failure because even if you're careful, sometimes things can go wrong and when they do, you want to be confident that your savings don't go to zero. So with Unchained Capital, you can buy two hardware wallets and create a vault on the platform. And if you need guidance, they've got a concierge service. And this has been very popular recently. So you can go and uh, sign up for the concierge onboarding program where they will ship you some hardware wallets and get you set up. So go to unchained.com, select the concierge onboarding program and use the code Lavera to get a discount on yours. And don't forget about backing up your Bitcoin. CypherGrid is a new product coming from CypherSafe.io. This is a metal seed backup for your 24 seed words. It's the best value in the industry. You get everything you need for $59. It's got two plates for all 24 seed words. The two plates are facing each other to hide your seed words. It can be locked with a padlock. You get a tamper evidence seal and an automatic center punch, which you use to stamp in or punch in for those words. And you do normally four letters per word. And just like all CypherSafe products, it's fireproof, rustproof, and waterproof. So to get yours, go to cyphersafe.io and use the code Lavera when ordering for a discount. Back to the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I ultimately, the reality is basically these coins don't need to exist other than Bitcoin. Right? <laughs> that seems to be, and I mean, for me, I've, I mean, I, I've been Bitcoin only the whole way, uh, but I guess people have to make their own assessment on whether you think a token needs to exist or whether uh, it really should have just been engineered and designed in a different way such that you didn't need that token. Also, there's been a lot of misleading use of different metrics and you touch on a very interesting point around rehypothecation, which is going on in the DeFi altcoin world. Can you tell us a little bit about that idea, the rehypothecation? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to be honest, when, when Alan and I were writing this, we found this to be one of the most difficult sections of the paper because we were playing around trying to rehypothecate assets on, on these platforms, and it, it gets quite funny. And I have to give a lot of credit. The Coinmetrics team put out a report on rehypothecation, I believe, a month, month and a half ago. We we stole, but we, we gave them credit, uh, part of that report uh, in it. But But what you're seeing essentially is that, you know, it's it's being pitched as over collateralized and in the first step it is over collateralized most of these things let's use the wrapped ether example you know you put wrapped ether in an original loan and then you can take out a, a thousand of dai but you're allowed to then put the dai and let's say then you put another thousand of usdc on uniswap and then you're in their pool you're in the usdc dai pool as lps so we've got two thousand dollars put in right now but then you also uh, can redeposit those again into another into another loan of Dai. So suddenly, when you and we did a, a bit of a graph of this, you've essentially turned you know two thousand dollars into five thousand five hundred dollars. So that's on like the total value locked and the rehypothecation of the assets that are going on, which. Again, lending in and of itself is not bad. Lending is a very, very important part of any sort of financial ecosystem. It's It just gets more dangerous when you start taking assets where I'm already concerned that they have actual any real value outside of speculative value, um, and then you start rehypothecating them on each other to market yourself as having all these volumes when truly it's it's a lot of leverage. And that's that's always a little a little scary there. Yeah. And so just walking that through, because there's a lot of terminology there. So for listeners, if you're new, just walking that through, TVL means total value locked. And now one thing a lot of these altcoin proponents are doing is they're coming out saying, oh, see, look how much TVL is in my altcoin DeFi protocol. And the reality, as you were just saying there, Al, is that a lot of that is actually rehypothecation. But the trick is you have to understand it's rehypothecation in a pseudo way across multiple layers or even different coins, such that the ecosystem is as a whole rehypothecating up on top of each other. Because the superficial understanding of it would be that, oh, see, this particular loan, it must be 200% collateralized or 150% collateralized, and therefore we're safe if something were to happen. But as you point out, the reality is that people can take a certain amount of ETH, say $1,500 of ETH or whatever, and pyramid on top of each other and keep going into different assets and into different platforms such that they get new tokens and receive more governance tokens and then use that to lend out on some other protocol. And before you know it, like $1,000 has become $5,000. You know, it's funny, human nature, you know, we've seen this in traditional finance. It's led to a lot of issues in traditional finance. The funny thing is, once you start going down this path, it's very tempting. Because if if you do it right, or if you're the, the let's call them middlemen, you're the people who are creating these, you can make a lot of money. But it's very dangerous for the ecosystem overall. So, you know, when I say I love decentralized finance, I'm saying also let's please not just repeat the same mistakes that we've done in the historically in traditional finance. Right. And people like Caitlin Long, also a past guest on the show, has been very vocal about the problems of rehypothecation, both in terms of securities and in terms of money. And so she has been very vocal about that, and as many, many people are. And so it really does seem like some of these people are just recreating the fiat system, but just in this quote unquote crypto world, unfortunately. Well, not, well, the the beauty of it for them is they get to be the new bankers and the new Federal Reserve, which is always a nice place to be because <laughs> you can make a nice chunk of change there. <laughs> 
Yeah, and so, I mean, I, I loved, there was just a section, I just want to read this section as well, uh, it's related. You were saying, um, a given asset can be used as, quote-unquote, collateral in one protocol, contributing to a new asset being minted, and then either itself reused, its collateralized end products reused, or its securitized governance rights reused, all again and again throughout multiple different protocols, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So then I, I think the other question would be, what would it look like if there were to be a collapse in some of these DeFi coins or potentially the price of some of these DeFi altcoins? So it's a, it's a tougher question. And, and just for background for the audience and for yourself, Alan and I had discussed actually just walking through an example or a historical one, but we felt like it was too hypothetical because, again, to give the ecosystem credit, during times of major distress, there has been new capital flow in. But but the way it would look and the way that is is a very classic example of almost a bank run, to be honest. It, it would almost look like that. So if you know ETH started collapsing or curve price started collapsing, there would be collateral calls. The collateral calls would close out other collateral calls on different protocols, which would then either require the users to restake. But if the users didn't have new money to throw into the system, they couldn't. So that's a fall on that collateral as well. And that starts to cascade through the ecosystem until all this pseudo leverage has sort of been washed out of it. And that doesn't mean that these things collapse to zero. But it does mean a very nasty way down in collateral calls and things that become forced liquidations through all of these. Because again, this is all algorithmically done. So once the collateral isn't there, it's a forced liquidation. And a forced liquidation then means an open market sale of, of some of the assets. And so what you do is a, is a sort of classic sort of uh, debt collapse or is probably a better word or, 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 or you know, viewers can uh, view it as a, as a bank run as people try to get their money out. And um, it's, it, would just, it would require essentially some sort of a difference. But it, it's a very good question. It's something that we didn't want to give some historical example because frankly during most of those um, flash crashes that are due to this uh, there has been new capital to backstop it yeah and it's also important to note that it might look like it's all okay in the first few years because you might be able to bail it out with progressively injecting more and more capital from investors who are maybe swallowed the, they've taken the kool-aid and they believe in this altcoin DeFi, and so they're happy to just keep plowing money in because they're getting cheap credit from the fed anyway and they're just plowing it in. But they might reach a point where the size of that altcoin DeFi market has just become too large to actually get bailed out effectively by new capital injections. And so what might have been okay when it was smaller, as it grows, it's just, it's not going to, they, they won't be able to save it next time. And, and to, as to when that point comes, we don't know, but it's, it's an important point to appreciate. The larger the cookie gets, the worse the crash will be. And I'm not just saying this about crypto or DeFi. Um, you can say it about actually almost any market in the world right now. I, you see it in equities, in debt, you know, um, and, and, and really it's a, it's a dangerous situation to, to start to play around with. But you're absolutely correct. No one knows when it's actually going to happen. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah, and you never know how much money the central banks of the world are just going to keep printing <laughs> up or the governments of the world are going to just keep printing up for their stimulus and for their various spending packages and then all that money sloshing around and maybe people just keep going. But it has to stop at some point. And so we'll just have to... And I, I, I guess I can understand as well for some people who are new and thinking they're looking at their friends who are gambling and hitting 3x and 4x and here they are sitting just making 10 or 20% or whatever it is. 
that can weigh on their mind and there's a competitive pressure and desire there and that may be also what forces or pushes people and pulls them in to this uh, shitcoin casino, basically. FOMO FOMO is a very real thing and also when it comes to institutional asset managers um, and a lot of the people who, if you look at who actually owns these and the percentages, like most of these DeFi products are like bulk owned by like a handful of firms. The, The incentives are for AUM. It's an AUM game. Even if they're scared of the the carousel going around, the incentives from not only retail FOMO but from institutional is to is to keep the the games going for as long as possible. Yeah, and on that, I'm curious as well as probably you would have looked into this as part of your research. Do you know the split in terms of the actual retail number of people using these DeFi coins versus the amount of let's say professional money managers, funds, and those kinds of people who are involved? Um. I, I've looked into it, but I don't have the best answer, to, to be honest. I think the number that are actually using it, especially when you're, if you're doing it on a volume-weighted basis, is going to skew very heavily to the large institutions. And as an ownership basis, I mean, that's obvious. It skews very heavily, but I don't have a great answer for you. Yeah, sure, sure. And I guess it does, because, and it seems like that seems to me like common knowledge. And yet, depending on who you're listening to or who you're seeing, it, it's almost like, there's this idea it's being marketed as, you know, coming back to what we were saying, this idea that any, anyone in the world can lend and borrow and send. But then the reality is it's mostly like big firms and high net worth investors and fund managers, professional level money managers who are actually using this thing as opposed to the everyman on the street who is getting a loan for whatever he needs in his real life. Exactly. I mean, the professional money managers are able to, they have the infrastructure and the time to be able to execute the arbitrage that keep coming up because there's new token launches, new yield liquidity pools, all of that stuff that come up all the time. They're the ones who, and that's what they're using it for. They're using tokens to trade other tokens to gain yield in other tokens. I'm going to be interested to see what their exit strategy is on how to monetize this into a real monetary asset. Because at some point, the cows will come home, and I'm, I'm interested to see how those large institutions get out of it. We'll see. Yeah, and so in terms of those large institutions, what would you say are their main advantages? Is it around having high-skilled individuals who know the nuances and the ins and outs of the ecosystem, or is it maybe better access to cheap credit, or is it better access in terms of information on what's going on do you have any thoughts on that yes i I do and i'm i'm going to be careful and and subtle on this one i i believe it's access to information one point i joke about uh which i'm happy to say on here is that what i see in this ecosystem you know knowing a lot of them uh being friends with a lot of them if i pulled what goes on on a daily basis in DeFi at my job i would be in handcuffs by the end of the business day (laughs) So that's that is my I, I it's look if it's not regulated that's fine you know you're you're not breaking but it's it's I've really never seen anything like it I've never seen it and yeah so I'll stop there before I yeah yeah, yeah totally I, yeah don't, uh, only say as much as you're comfortable to say but it seems like a lot of there's this whole cottage industry right because you've got like exchanges who kind of have an incentive to you know promote this stuff because they want the trading fees uh, you've got you know, all kinds of different people, all with their own incentive to get involved in their own way, whether that's 
you're involved in the influencing and the marketing of it and you're getting paid out to do that or write articles or interview the founder or things like that or whether you you know have found some other role as a technical expert to help find these opportunities let's say and arbitrage and things so it's it's a very weird ecosystem and it just seems to me like the every man the retail individual just has no idea what they're up against i couldn't agree more I think you actually articulated better than I even could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And one other point I really wanted to get your thoughts on. So in the paper, you talk about, okay, so it's like a quote, right? So it's almost like Ether is allegedly the right to run decentralized computing, right? But at the same, you had a really interesting point about how that's more like an operating expense than a, an equity or like something that should be floating around as, a, an, a, as an actual price. Uh, could you explain what you were getting at with that? Yeah, yeah, that one that one was certainly a nuanced point. And, uh, Alan and I had a back and forth on that one. Um, but it's the essentially is that, you know, it, it is an operating expense and it's this idea of, you know, okay, you need the ether to run the computing. That's that's actually okay with me, but it creates the system of, you know, then all this other shenanigans that might be going on on top of Ether become based on the operating expense of Ether itself. And there's this mismatch of um, incentives that takes place due to that, where if that gets more expensive and transaction fees go up, it's like, unlike in, let's say, with Bitcoin and proof of work, it actually makes the chain more secure. That's a good thing, right? That's, a, that's making you bulletproof. That's wonderful. Here it is. Well, that's actually a bad thing. You're passing it on into all the users of the decentralized finance and you know of course they're going to be scaling solutions and i'm you know i'm excited to see and monitor what what eth2 scaling can accomplish there's probably some brilliant things people will do but it's it um i think that point boiled down as simply as possible because it was a very nuanced point <laughs> even alan and i had a lot of discussions mm. on that one is that you you you've created this this system where okay it's a it's a a way to pay for it so it's an operating expense but then there's this mismatch in if it goes up in value the operating expenses go up for everyone trying to build on you which is supposedly a bad thing so we want to lower it but why should that be a bad thing when it comes to the security of a of a of a network so so that was really the um i think that that encompasses most of that point but um yeah yeah so essentially put in other words it's almost like the quote-unquote success of the system can put almost put the system at cross purposes from a security perspective and that it might then become less secure as the price runs up and so it's a really weird thing there and it also there's like a really weird sense in which it just seems like a weird incentive right so as an example and i think you made this analogy it's this idea that let's say you you had a bank that has its office and its electricity bill, but it indexes that ratio to the price that it charges to the customers in terms of like their electricity or their rent. When they, I mean, they should just be more like they should just be charging their fee, whether that's a percentage <laughs> fee or an upfront fee or whatever. But it's like trying to involve the customers to have a share in the like electricity cost of the bank, right? It's like a sort of loose analogy, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that was the best analogy that, you know, um, Maybe someone will come up with a much better analogy than us, but that was the best one that, that we could come up with. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it comes down to this point that, as you say, um, it's like the altcoin token is trying to double as computational credit and a security incentive. And then potentially those are the ones really at peril, right? Yes, very much so. I mean, that's I don't see how those two can exist in cohesion. Yeah. Whereas I think comparing back to Bitcoin, it's much more of an explicit, 
This token is trying to be money. You you hold it, you save it, you spend it if you need to, and over time, the security of the network is coming from all the miners who are trying to mine new Bitcoin, and they want to receive transaction fees. And that's it's a very honest and, uh, I guess the word people say is incentive-aligned or incentive-compatible system in that way. Whereas when you compare it to altcoins, it's uh, not really the case. Exactly. And there's a lot of, you know... Getting past Ether, uh, again, a lot of brilliant people work on it. You all have to give credit where credit's due. But, you know, with with Bitcoin also, and Ether doesn't just, but a lot of the other coins, there's no promise of a yield. It's a floating point value. It's, it's what the community and what is built off it chooses is the value. It's incredibly fair. And I like that for my base layer. And we can talk about what I'd like for the layer twos, because I think there's actually some of the move fast attitude that can be learned from in the ETH ecosystem on the Lightning ecosystem. That absolutely does not mean tokens, but it does mean I like my base layer secure and boring, like a judicial system. But what you do on top of that, there should be an entrepreneurial attitude of, of movement. Yeah, I love that point about having the base layer secure. And, and I mean, even in the, in the example of the Lightning Network, it is arguably like a, a court in a sense, right? That the two channel partners are trying to close their channel and the blockchain is essentially the one that's deciding who's getting what in terms of how many sats are going to each side of that channel. So, I mean, it's not like a full-on, you know, everything, code is law or whatever, but it is just a in a restricted way, it's deciding who gets what in that sense. And so it, it really is like that, in the, in the especially in the examples of Lightning and other Layer 2 protocols like that. So I guess, let me put it this way then. What would have to change for your view on altcoins to improve on, and on this kind of idea of crypto and DeFi? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think that one is, um, we, we talk about this in, in the section why we might be wrong, because you really do try to be intellectually honest here. I think one is that if there is an ability for for different projects, I'm not sure if DeFi can ever get there, but there's certainly other chain, other projects that connect to real world value, things that people value as humans, whether it's, you know, you see some gaming stuff coming up now, some uh, audio uh, music stuff coming up now. If that can actually translate to value to an end customer, then okay, I still don't quite see why you need a token. Why not just use your base layer asset ETH? But that's a different story. We've discussed that enough for the interview. Mm. Um, I also think that, you know, Sometimes, I don't believe this, but it can always be true. Things like what we saw with the internet, it doesn't always turn out as perfectly as you'd like it to be. And maybe the average uh, person, average user is willing to sort of give up and give away the fact of, you know, this is truly decentralized and whatnot for, you know, these developers and a huge developer ecosystem on these other chains creating projects that that again create value with DeFi, the the problem and the promises is that there is just such a disconnect for me is that if especially with DeFi, i mean again you need real world yields like if let's say if we can have lumber companies utilizing DeFi, like some like you know you buy wood to build your new patio right <laughs> it's it's somehow on these DeFi protocols then i will look at that but um we, we go through a couple points on why I might be wrong, but again, until we get that connection where it isn't just tokens being created, rehypothecated, and then you gain more yield on other tokens you trade, that's I, 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 I struggle to see where, where that will end up accruing long-term value. Short term, you can yeah. make a boatload of money, and good for good for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you put it well there, and I think it's 
maybe one way to summarize it is there needs to be some kind of link back to productive production, productive capital. And so maybe that's one way to think of it. And look, as an example, I recall, like I've been in the Bitcoin world since around 20, early 2013, basically. And I recall there was a site called BTC Jam. And this was like a, you know, earlier days kind of lending out Bitcoin to get interest on it. And people would say, hey, this is why I want this loan, because I want to do Bitcoin mining or whatever. And it was, you know, you were going to earn some money back in Bitcoin, right? And that was, I think later that site got shut down and, you know, so on. But you would need to see real productive use of that money. And as you were saying, whether it's Lumberjacks or, you know, whatever other business that you're going to do, there just needs to be that productive link there. And so I wonder then, do you have any thoughts on the future of Bitcoin and DeFi specifically? Like, uh, as an example, now, one of my sponsors is HODL HODL. They've got this idea that you can collateralize and you can borrow against your Bitcoin and borrow stablecoins against your Bitcoin. So that's one example. Maybe in the future, if we were to start to see more people using that as a way of funding their business ideas, maybe that would be something more aligned with what we would call Bitcoin DeFi. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. I think one of the key distinctions is that you know Bitcoin is intentionally trying to be a monetary asset, a monetary. It's a floating point asset. It doesn't have a yardstick to the real world, it has a yardstick to the usages of it. Um, I will have to look deeper. It's actually one of my to-do lists, as you know. In this space, there's always a million things to do. <laughs> but um, I think that you can see a future where. It, Lending in and of itself is not a bad thing, and borrowing is not a bad thing. Matter of fact, um, there's a lot of evidence to show that strong uh, financial capital markets and the ability to lend and loan and, and raise debt is uh, one of the best things that um, can show whether or not a society will be um, productive and um, affluent. Uh, so it, it, again, I think that I, I've, I've looked a little in HODL HODL. Um, I'm looking a little at Sovereign just to learn about them. I, these, I'm excited about what they can do. And I just, look, I'm going to take the same, you know, critical opinion to anything where I think that unnecessary tokens are rehypothecated and whatnot. But if you keep the base layer, you keep it strong and you, you have a very clear, you know, you can create a monetary asset off of a strong judicial system. And that goes through countries and everything. And that is that is why I continue to believe that most of the beautiful things or really cool things that might be a little scary um, on ETH or other uh, chains will port over to Bitcoin because they will come to the realization that having a strong monetary base is critical for any economy to flourish. And at the end of the day, we want this to be an economy. Of course. And maybe one other point just to add to that might be that look the world is undergoing bitcoinization and eventually it will culminate in hyper bitcoinization right the world is that's at least that's my view on where where we're going it could also be that until then the best most productive use is for people to just buy bitcoin and hold it and then only once we've reached a point closer to full adoption then it would make more sense for people to actually start investing that bitcoin into other ventures like business ventures because at that point we would anticipate the purchasing power growth of bitcoin to have start to taper down right so if you look historically right now it's probably like 140 percent per year or some ridiculous number <laughs> right obviously that will have to taper down over time it can't just sustain that forever uh and maybe once it kind of call it five percent per year or something in that range then at that point you might have more productive businesses and more of a reason to have a lending and debt market it, but denominated in Bitcoin using Bitcoin DeFi to fund productive capital. What do you think? 
I I think you're absolutely right. I think we've you know everyone overestimates what they can do in two years and underestimates what they can do in ten years. And I think that we will get there sooner than people think, maybe in a ten year basis. But um, you're absolutely right. I, I couldn't agree more. Bitcoin will not continue a, as you get hyper Bitcoinized. I hope that we do create an economy that is perhaps more fair and perhaps you know fixes a lot of a lot of issues that we see in our current monetary system, which exacerbate a lot of both political and social issues. But that's a little outside the scope of this paper, and we could probably nerd out about that for a whole nother hour. So, <laughs> <laughs> Sure, sure. Um, so, Al, do you have any closing thoughts or any, any final points that you wanted to make for the listeners? No, I think I think for the listeners and once fun, I really appreciate you having me on, and I, I really wish Alan was able to, to jump on as well. Um, I just hope that, you know, for all the readers and the people, if you actually read through it, look, both of us are always happy to be proven wrong. I've been wrong time and time again, and I, it really is, this piece was meant to just put out our opinions. We tried to be as thorough and thoughtful as possible, so... If anyone listening to this or anyone who's read it wants to reach out, I don't check Twitter very often. I have a you know a fake profile I've used for basically nothing. But please do please do reach out to me, and I, I, I again I would love to see where I've where well Alan and I have have missed things. So that's that's really all I have to say on a closing comment. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for joining me, and uh, I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you, Stefan. Me too. Make sure you share this episode with your family and friends so they will learn about what's going on with Bitcoin as contrasted with crypto. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 311 and I'll see you in the Citadels.